From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. Congress just passed a budget resolution that clears the way for a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package without a single GOP vote. We'll hear how it might be framed in red parts of California that could really use the help. Plus, last week LA got enough rain that it left snow on the mountains, but when it comes to water, are we now all caught up or are we still all dried out? It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, so we're going to jump right in with State of Affairs. That's our weekly look at politics in the Golden State. And this week, California Congressman Kevin McCarthy and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been going toe-to-toe. But it's not over Donald Trump or over some proposed legislation, no. It all stems from the newly elected representative from the state of Georgia who forced the House's hand to make a stunning bipartisan decision yesterday. Yesterday. Today, we have Marisa Lagos, correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of the weekly show and podcast, Political Breakdown. Hello, Marisa. Hey, happy Friday. Also with us, Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Zach, welcome back. Great to be here, eh? All right. In case anyone uh, has not been paying attention to Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's been in the spotlight for making all sorts of false and uh, silly claims that she says now are in her past, beliefs from her past. Some of them are like the mass shootings of Sandy Hook and Parkland were hoaxes, uh, as was 9-11, that uh, space lasers caused the campfire up in Northern California, so that kind of stuff. And there's some worse things, actually, that I did not list. Uh, But, Marisa, how has a Greene now become the focal point for the current feud between Pelosi and McCarthy? Well, it may maybe just because there was a vacuum left by Trump that we're all talking about her, I think. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah I mean, so th- a lot of these statements were well known um, even before she ran in the primary um, and overtook you know, other Republicans um, who the party, including McCarthy, did choose to back Green um, in that primary. And I think that's important to note. Um, Yeah, these are QAnon conspiracies. These are lies. You call them silly. I mean, some of them are outright racist, anti-Semitic. And she really, I think in recent weeks after the attack on the Capitol, there's been an increased kind of look um, in the media and and by other members of Congress at what she has said in the past. And in, in some cases, it was actually calling for supporting violence uh, post that called for violence against people like Nancy Pelosi and President Obama. Um, and so, you know, essentially this, I think over the past few weeks, as as everybody kind of sorted through what happened on January 6th, there's been this increasing call for something uh, to be done for her, some sort of discipline. And it really centered um, this week around this question of whether she should be on committees, especially the Education Committee um, and McCarthy and the Republican caucus made the choice this week not to remove her themselves. So the Democrats went ahead and took the vote. And it was a bipartisan vote, too. 
It was. There were 11 uh, Republicans who joined Democrats, including newly elected uh, Representative Young Kim from Orange County. All the rest of California's Republican uh, delegation did did not vote to remove her. So Young Kim is the only one, which I just learned and found very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and McCarthy, uh, for his part at least, uh, says that there's no place for QAnon conspiracies in the GOP and that Green has assured the party that uh, all of that is in the past. And I got to say the past for her is just a couple of years ago. But let's listen to McCarthy. I think it would be helpful if you could hear exactly what she told all of us, denouncing QAnon. I don't know if I say it right. I don't even know what it is. Um, any from the shootings. She said she knew nothing about lasers or all the different things that have been brought up about her. Um, and so from that perspective, she's now a member. If, if we are now going to start judging what other members have said before they're even members of Congress, I think it's going to be a hard time for the Democrats to place anybody on committee. Zach Corser, Kevin McCarthy has been criticized for how he's handling this. Uh, why do you think McCarthy has made Green, or maybe whatever she represents to him, a hill worth dying on? Well, he's trying to keep both ends of what is an increasingly fracturing party together. I mean, we can't forget he had two critical votes in his caucus. One, of course, was on Green and whether or not to strip her of her committee assignments or really to do anything. And then, of course, Liz Cheney, you know, who... Uh, voted for the impeachment of Trump. You know, she's third in command in the House leadership right now. And, you know, Matt Getz is in her home district, giving her a tough time. And she's trying to stick out some territory that's looking beyond, you know, MAGA and Trump and QAnon. And now we've got, you know, Marjorie Green on the other side of this. And he's trying to hold both of these parts together, but they don't fit. I think that's, you know, as much as he might try to split the difference. You know, he did manage to protect them both within the conference. You know, I think we're just going to see the cleavages widen, particularly as we get into 2022. And, you know, Green's lesson from this has been, well, not having committee assignments gives me more time, essentially, to continue my campaign. You know, And so I think we see more partisan heartache ahead. Yeah. And on McCarthy's last point there, that uh, if we're going to start judging what other members have said before they're members of Congress and that Dems were going to have a tough time putting their members on committees uh, going forward. Lindsey Graham tweeted this last night. Uh, if successful, the partisan effort to strip Green of her committee assignments will set a terrible precedent for the House with no end in sight. Uh, Marisa, does that uh, reasoning hold water to you? I think it might if the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said and endorsed had, were not so ridiculous and that we had not seen some of these conspiracy theories and other kind of online communities lead to actual violence on January 6th. Um, you know, I know that a lot of the debate yesterday centered around these sort of procedural questions. Is this a good precedent? Um, other Republicans tried to sort of what about ism, you know, claim that maybe um, comments made in the past by Representative Ilhan Omar, which some perceived as anti-Semitic, which were critical of Israel, are the same thing. Um, I think that, you know, what we heard from the people that voted for this is that they view calling for violence as as, as a real um you know, a, a place where you can't kind of come back from. And I, and I think that what Democrats said was great. If this is setting a precedent, we will happily remove a member from Congress who calls on uh, calls for violence against another member. Um, and I, you know, I think we should keep him to that. Zach, uh, Steve Knight uh, of Iowa, he had uh, his committee stripped. Uh, so this action has been taken before. How is, how is this different to you if it is? Well, I mean, it's certainly become a more common practice. I mean, before 2001, uh, you'd have to look back almost 100 years to find somebody stripped of a committee assignment in the House. 
And it tends to be, you know, in the last 20 years, it tends to be done for one of two reasons. One could be corruption um, or illegal activities, you know, like Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter. They were under federal indictment. Oftentimes it's political, though. Uh, you know, Justin Amash from um, um, Michigan, he was removed uh, basically for a vote against leadership. Now, I think here, and, and this is where I think, you know, McCarthy was trying to do something that just doesn't make sense. And where Lindsey Graham, they're trying to conflate an issue here. You know, there are partisan issues, you know, the idea about disagreeing about policies. But within the House, there's institutional concerns. Like it's in the Constitution that it is up to the House chamber to decide and police their member standards and who stays in the chamber. And this is an institutional issue. And I think it's just another sad sign of the fact that, you know, the parties can't agree on anything, including, you know, the con, you know, what is what is the floor for conduct for a House member? And while this may seem an easier path for McCarthy, I think it's going to it's a toxic strategy that's actually going to lead to more polarization. We're joined by KQED's Marisa Lagos and Zach Corser of Claremont McKenna College. Uh, let's stay on McCarthy for a second, because there's a lot of outrage among even conservative commentators over how he handled all this. The headline that stood out to me was from Michael Gerson's opinion piece in The Washington Post. and It's titled Kevin McCarthy is now our most disgraceful political leader. Marisa, too harsh in the ballpark or either way, McCarthy <laughs> had it coming. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to make that judgment, eh? but I do think that the reason you're seeing people, including, you know, this conservative, albeit anti-Trump columnist, uh, take this stand is that McCarthy really does seem to want to have his cake and eat it, too. Right. I mean, it's not like he stood up and threw Liz Cheney out of leadership. Um, he is saying that we need to stay together. Um, but I, I do think the Marjorie Taylor Greene situation is a different uh, one than one, that, you know, when we often see within these fights. Right. I mean, often when somebody is, to, you know, to Zach's point, taken off of a committee or put in a terrible office uh, as we've seen happen in the state capitol when they <laughs> anger the the leader um it is really because of these intra-party disagreements over whether you know they take a certain position on policy or, or stand in line I, that is a different thing than i think this vast very violent uh lee sort of infused conspiracy and you know mccarthy stood up and said he doesn't know what QAnon is that's a lie he, he mispronounced it them. too he's been you know right he's been doing that gotta, on purpose yeah, yeah. but that's yeah. a lie he he he, he in just just back in August, stood up and denounced QAnon. Clearly, he knows what it is. Anybody who turns on the TV these days knows what it is. So I do think that um, McCarthy has really carved out a career out of kind of, you know, as Jerry Brown would have said, paddling a little left and a little right, you know, kind of trying to make these different factions happy. And it, and it appears to some extent to be coming to a head right now. And Trump mispronounced it, too, when he was on with Savannah Guthrie in that town hall. I remember yeah. he mispronounced it almost Weirdly so. Now, um, you know, uh, Zach, to your point that McCarthy is, is straining right now to kind of keep both sides of this party together. Uh, Gerson also wrote in that piece uh, that, quote, seldom has a political figure misunderstood his country and its challenges more comprehensively than McCarthy. This is not a time for balancing. It's a time for choosing. Zach, for McCarthy's political survival, doesn't he only need to understand his district's constituents? Well, no, because he's the leader of the Republicans in the House. And as a leader, he has an opportunity here, uh, an electoral opportunity for 2022, but I think also responsibility to his party. He could have chosen to pivot away from QAnon and from the MAGA legacy of Trump, but he chose to go to Mar-a-Lago instead. And he's choosing to polarize further over Marjorie Taylor Greene. So 
at this point, rather than leading his party forward, I think he, he might end up in the end leading them into the sunset. Gerson's best line in that piece, I'll just quote this and last thing on McCarthy, the rise of radicalism confronts the GOP with a choice between drinking hemlock and not drinking hemlock. McCarthy's brilliant compromise is to take a slightly smaller dose. I thought that was kind of funny in a political kind of way. All right, let's uh, move on now. Now, a big turn uh, big turn of events uh, next week. The second impeachment trial of Donald Trump is supposed to get underway. Now, House managers asked Trump to testify yesterday. He said no really, really fast. Uh, Marisa, what sort of blow is this to the case against Trump and what's next for the managers, you think? I'm not sure it's necessarily a blow. I mean, they, you know, the accusation from the Trump side is that this has not been fair to him. And I think that this is an attempt to show that he had the ability to mount a defense. Um, In terms of the substance of the case, I know that there's some reporting today that the House managers are looking even sort of broader to see what happened behind closed doors on January 6th and what other folks, including former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, may or may not have said or done um, in terms of encouraging this. But I think that, you know, we're going to see... I think them try to as quickly as possible put forward as much detail, kind of put as much meat on the bones around what happened, obviously linking it to Trump, but also I think really trying to underscore how horrific the events of that day were. Um, we're hearing they're going to be using videos and other kinds of media to really show that because so much of this was caught on tape. Zach, considering that a conviction requires a two-thirds vote and 45 of 50 senators already voted to dismiss the trial, saying it'd be unconstitutional to do this to a former president, are, are the House managers just walking into a game that's already been decided? Well, I, mean, I don't think so. I think this is about putting it all on the record. I think this is about forcing a vote on the facts in a trial in the Senate and not just playing this off as you know campaign rhetoric. And I, I think it kind of relates back to our point about McCarthy and Green is that really, I think at the core of this is supposed to be some kind of constitutional principle, that it's not just mere partisanship. Not everything is some kind of you know, political game, that there are limits to, and there are, there are reasons to impeach a president. And I think the Democrats are attempting to make this principled argument. And I, you know, if you take impeachment seriously, uh, I think, you know, I think, again, it rests on a constitutional principle. All right. And finally, in yet another example of why elections matter. On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50, the Senate being equally divided, The vice president votes in the affirmative, and the concurrent resolution as amended is adopted. Vice President Kamala Harris breaking a tie in the Senate after 15 hours of debate on the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. The House passed it uh, this afternoon without a single GOP vote, by the way. Uh, Zach, the VP will probably be breaking a lot more ties in the next uh, four years, but how is California uh, poised to benefit from this bill? Well, right off the bat, you know, we about a year ago, we were talking about this huge hole that was predicted in the California budget and how Republicans and Trump were really unwilling to consider any kind of state and local bailout or relief efforts during COVID. Well, it looks like, you know, this bet that Newsom and the legislature took that there would be federal relief is now paying off because $440 billion of that package is going directly to state and local relief. So we do have a windfall budget. Um, you know, we don't need it maybe as badly as we did, but this is going to give us a lot more breathing room than we would have had otherwise. Marisa, not a single Republican in Congress voted for this, yet uh, there, there probably stands to be a lot of Republican voters in all those districts that are going to be helped out by this uh, anyway. So how do GOP lawmakers frame this when they head back to their districts? 
That's such an interesting question. I mean, they might, it might be a win-win for some of them, right? They can, their constituents are still getting the help, but they got to hold the fiscal line. Um, but I think that this is going to be just the first in a number of uh, priorities for the Biden administration, where as much as they would like sort of bipartisan, uh, you know, cooperation, it may be Democrats going it alone. Um, and we're going to have to see how both parties handle it at home and, and what that means in 22, of course, for the rest of Biden's administration. All right, one more thing, and I can't resist only because the big game is on Sunday. It's uh, the Chiefs uh, going for a back-to-back Super Bowl win. Um, Patrick Mahomes would be going for a second to Super Bowl as well. Tom Brady, who, you know, by default, guys, I- I'm an old dude, so I, I kind of like that an old dude is still getting it done. He and the Buccaneers are going to try and, uh, and win on Sunday. So what do you think? Uh, Marisa, you first. Who- who's going to win this game? I honestly have no idea. I've not been paying attention, but I will see. Say, I do feel like people are, are are being a little nicer to Tom Brady than normal. I don't know if you saw that SNL sketch. But he's saying he's the one thing that works in America, so maybe it'll be his team. I don't know. Zach, what about you? A, the autumn wind is a pirate. <laughs> so you're a Raider fan? They're not playing in the oh Buccaneers? Are you oh, Buccaneers. by extension? Okay. Buccaneers. All right, all right. With apologies what? to Raiders fans, I wow. think it's the Buccaneers. You threw me a curveball. All this sports talk <laughs> we're doing on State of Affairs. That's uh, Marisa Lagos, correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and a co-host of a weekly show and podcast, Political Breakdown. Also with us, Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Marisa, Zach, uh, have a great Super Bowl weekend. You do. You do. All right, L.A. got uh, some rain last week, left snow on the mountains. But when it comes to water levels, are we all now caught up or are we still all dried out? Find out in 60 seconds. How to L.A. is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness and just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. Last fall, a lot of California was pretty dry, like extreme drought conditions, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. So we wanted to know what last week's soaking got us. And here to explain it all is KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis. Okay, Jacob. So how much rain did we get last week? And uh, was it enough to make a difference? It was so nice, wasn't it? It's it was. Like, it know, was. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, you know for our, our our biggest months for rain are between December and February. So when those months are particularly dry, we start to worry. So thank you, atmospheric river. Thank you so much. Uh, the wetness was appreciated and needed. Um, you know, we saw generally between one and three inches. The mountains got a little bit more. Uh, here in LA, as well as up in Ventura and uh, other parts of the state, like up north, got uh, you know obviously a bit of snow. Um, and so all those plants in all of our hills, which is really what we're kind of concerned about because of fires, are going to be sucking up every last bit of moisture. Um, that said, across 
the area here in Southern California, we're still several inches behind our historic average, um, rough of half, roughly half or so where we should be at, at in some spots. So, um, you know, fingers crossed for a couple more atmospheric rivers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going outside anyway, Jacob. I'm staring wistfully through the window, but this time I was happy because it was raining. So, okay, about the Sierra snowpack, how is that looking right now? Yeah, so local rain is obviously a little less important um, than where we get the majority of our water from, which is the Sierra Nevada, as well as the Colorado River Basin. Uh, the atmospheric river helped a lot in the Sierra, raising snowpack from 38% of normal to 69% of normal for um, the entirety of the mountain range. That said, it's still only about 57% of normal in the southern Sierra, which is not great. Over in Colorado, um, the snowpack is hovering around 66-75% of normal, which makes me feel like, okay. But one way I judge how things are going is by looking at the state's reservoirs, and for many, um, we're near the historic average, but there are still some that were pretty, pretty low. So it's safe to be optimistic with a, it could be worse kind of feel. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's my, that's, that's my beat. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Now we're still technically though in the rainy season for a few more months. So how much rain do we need to uh, put us out of risk and what's the likelihood that we'll get it by the end of March? Yeah, the likelihood is really tough. It's really tough to say. Um, we've had La Nina conditions this rainy season and that can often mean drier months, um, that La Nina system is supposed to break in the spring, so who knows, maybe we'll see more rain after our rainy season like we did last year, strangely. We saw a decent amount of rain between April and May. Like, California and climate change are crazy. Um, as far as how much more rain we need and snow we need to remove risk, like... I I need to emphasize we're always at risk and then all of a sudden we can get hit by a few atmospheric rivers and be caught up for the year. So like I said, tough thing to say. So we're always in a state of risk when I, it's, I don't mean to laugh, but it's like, that's, I think people want to jump out of risk so badly, Jacob, that I think they, they're looking for any nugget of hope. Yeah. You know, uh, every drop of rain is a blessing and just know that, uh, it might be a long time until the next one comes. Yeah. Because I mean, what decent rain in the, in, you know, in a few years ago, uh, you know, we all were kind of ripping out our lawns, putting, uh, you know, succulents everywhere. I mean, yeah, we, we were, I was doing that too. I mean, are we more prepared for drought because of all of what we did back then? Uh, yes or no? I mean, that's such a big question. You know, I, I think we've permanently altered our mindsets around water use here in the state over the past few decades. Um, and that's great. Uh, even as the population has grown, like individual water use has been falling. So per capita, um, back in 1990, we used to use 231 gallons of water per person per day. It's now at 146, so almost 100 gallons uh. less per person per day. Um, a big part was reducing landscape watering. Uh, that makes up about half of urban water use, not just your lawn or your, your vegetables, which I think are okay to grow. But remember, like before you beat yourself up, before anyone out there beats themselves up about water use, unless it's absolutely super egregious, agriculture accounts for a huge portion of the water that we use. And there has been a lot of revamping of efficiency in those systems. I mean, they want to save themselves money. Um, like there are com completely computerized systems that figure out how to water as efficiently as possible. Um, but still, like those, that stuff doesn't future-proof us from catastrophe. And we still haven't recovered from the last drought. So like uh, all of our ground water stores they're not all built back up and that's scary for agriculture going forward so we're still then in that place where we're close to maybe slipping back to the to the really extreme drought that we had five years ago i mean that we could always slip that back there easily is what you're saying I always feel like it's a year or two away. Um, mm. There's a paper that came out last year that argued we're in the midst of a mega drought that we've gone on, that we've we've been in one for about 20 years, uh, that these last 20 years or so have been 
um, as bad as we can basically figure out at least 1200 the last 1200 years uh, like we need to drop the idea of thinking a drought is off and on and like accept that our water future is going to be rough in the state one more thing jacob assuming we're minding our p's and q's when it comes to water conservation anything else mm-hmm. we should be doing um, I mean, I think everything you could do on an individual level can, it can be empowering, but really there are system wide things that we need to change and continue to adjust as, as we go forward. And water managers at the state level know that. All right. That's KPCC science, uh, reporter, Jacob Margolis. Jacob, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks. Eh? All right, moving on. In most of Southern California, the next group eligible for coronavirus vaccines will include child care workers. In L.A. County alone, it'll take an estimated 100,000 doses to cover the field. That's based on the number of licensed child care homes, centers, and other providers that receive state subsidies. Christina Alvarado helped create that estimate. She heads up the Child Care Alliance of Los Angeles, which has been working with the public health department on how to roll out vaccines. The biggest problem right now in Los Angeles County, whether we're talking about childcare providers or healthcare providers or whatever, is there's not enough vaccines. KPCC's early childhood reporter, Mariana Dale, has been following all of this. Uh, so, Mariana, what is the latest there? So, specifically, I was looking at Orange County, L.A. County, and Pasadena, which also has its own public health department. And in those areas, child care workers are in the next group to be vaccinated, along with teachers and other essential workers. But meanwhile, there are more than 9,000 licensed child care centers and homes who are continuing to operate in those areas. And that includes the Pasadena Day Nursery for Child Development. Jeanette Romero is the executive director and says her staff is eager to be vaccinated, but the wait has been pretty disappointing. Here we are again, left to fend for ourselves while we're being asked to stay open. Uh, Marina, what do we know about how the coronavirus has impacted the child care workforce? Well, the number of cases in child care settings has been fairly low from the beginning. They've had really strict health guidelines. But I think it's really important to recognize that more than half of L.A.'s child care workers are Latino, a community overall that has been hard hit by the pandemic. Justine Flores is a family child care provider in Los Angeles. She knows colleagues and community members who have died from COVID-19. I don't want to see no more providers pass away. I don't want to have to visit another funeral. And there are also high coronavirus mortality rates in high poverty areas, and child care workers are often economically vulnerable. In L.A. County, they make on average less than 15 bucks an hour. And statewide, more than half of child care providers' families qualify for at least one public assistance program. Is there anywhere that that has been able to vaccinate child care workers yet? Yeah, there's Long Beach. The ah, city okay. also has its own public health department, and they started vaccinating child care workers at centers and nannies last week. But again, supply is still a big issue. I talked to one center director this week who said only about a quarter of her staff have been able to get appointments to get vaccinated, and home child care providers also haven't been able to get vaccinated yet. So it sounds like for the purposes of the vaccine anyway, the, the label child care doesn't always cover everyone who, who takes care of kids. Uh, Mariana, can Can you explain how public health agencies are deciding who's a priority for the vaccine? 
Well, it's complicated because the field of child care is so diverse. I'll use L.A. County as an example. That 100,000 vaccine estimate you mentioned earlier includes staff at child care centers and licensed family child care homes. There's also some informal child care. It's called family, friends and neighbors, but they're only including those that get state subsidies. And the total also includes staff at agencies that provide child care resources and referrals and employees at public parks and rec and youth programs that also provide childcare. And all of that's not even final yet, but it doesn't include nannies or people who live in homes where childcare is being provided, in part because it's really hard to verify who exactly that would apply to. And then Orange County and Pasadena are still in the process of defining what types of childcare workers are going to be included in that next, you know, lucky group that gets vaccinations. Yeah. So then what can childcare workers do in the meantime to prepare? Well, they can start thinking about how they're going to prove that they're actually a child care provider. Again, this is not set in stone, but it's likely that they're going to have to show their ID and some kind of employment verification before they can be vaccinated. So examples are a work badge, the license for a family child care provider, or a letter from an employer or a resource and referral agency. All right, that's KPCC's Mariana Dale with an update on child care providers and vaccines. Mariana, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, our latest installment in our series called Race in L.A. Stay tuned. You're going to want to hear this when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and available most places where you find your podcast, Sammy Martinez. All right, time now for the latest installment in our Race in L.A. series. Now, in it, we ask Angelinos how race and identity shape their day-to-day lives. The essays written by community contributors and also a few L.A. staffers are published each week. And the hope is that these stories fuel meaningful, authentic conversations about how lived experiences as a certain race or ethnicity. Now, this week, award-winning author Jervie Turvalone shares his essay about growing up and going to school as a light-skinned black child in Los Angeles after his family moved here from New Orleans. I wonder what would have happened if my parents had moved to the Jefferson Park area of Los Angeles after driving out here from New Orleans. What would have happened if they had moved to Palm Springs as my mother wanted to do? 
How would Hillary, my oldest brother, have handled that? How would that have felt being largely in a world of whites while looking like the whitest white boy when you thought of yourself as black? Hillary, my oldest brother by almost 10 years, presented so white that he was cast in the spook who sat by the door just by standing in the unemployment line at age 25. A casting agent magically appeared and asked if he wanted to be in a movie. We need some light skin, N-word, he told him. I assumed the guy doing the casting was black, but I never got around to asking. Me, I had more problems to consider than how people saw me. I heard voices and had to sleep with my mother until I was eight and ate everything to calm myself. I was afraid to die like it could happen at any second. It didn't help that I loved reading Dracula and the books of H.P. Lovecraft. My parents knew I might be damaged goods, so they wrapped me in layers of love and concern. And eventually I grew out of being panicked by my own thinking. Race ambiguity wasn't on top of the list of things to worry over until my eighth grade English teacher said she'd just come back from Paris and pointed at me and said, a lot of the boys I saw in Paris looked just like you with your rosy cheeks. I could hear the snarls of the hood rats in the back of the class who were looking forward to punching me in the face. The truth is I have no French ancestry. I am 42% West African and the rest Spanish, Portuguese, and Irish English. A good part of my genome is the path of the slave trade, but I didn't care about that as a boy. I just wanted to hide from accusations of having rosy red French boy cheeks. My parents sent me to Holy Name of Jesus Christ at Webb Elementary, and things didn't go well. My first grade teacher didn't think much of me. She actually thought that I was what she politely referred to as retarded, and that I should be held back and told this to my mother. I wondered how this nun couldn't have sensed that my mother was a volcano of rage, had already decided that the nun hated black people, and that she hated me because I was lighter than she was. It was complicated racial mathematics, but even if working from flawed premises, Mama always came up with the right conclusions. Then one day, I ate something to disagree with my stomach in the school cafeteria, and I vomited. The nun had me clean it up. I don't remember telling Mama about getting sick and making a mess and having to clean it up, but she somehow knew, and the next day, she requested a meeting with a nun who met with us before class. Sister, did Jerby throw up in the cafeteria? The nun, sensing that my mother was in a murderous rage, mumbled a reply, what? Mama pressed her. He did, the nun replied. Did you make him clean it up? Let me explain this to you, sister. If you make my child clean up his own vomit again, I'll rip your veil off and put your face in it. You understand me, sister? The nun stood there, mouth hanging open, terrified to move. I was embarrassed and confused, but also proud. My mama, my brutal hero. So I got yanked out of Catholic school because my mama threatened the nun and I was transferred to Sixth Avenue Elementary School. The world was largely of one color. I didn't even remember white teachers. The only non-black people were the Japanese who still lived there in the Jefferson Park neighborhood. If you did see a white person, it probably was somebody like my mother who looked white, but was Negro, as she would have said. This was my world, our world, isolated from greater LA. 
My reputation as a dull-witted troublemaker preceded me, and so I was given Mr. Martin, the sternest teacher in the world. Walking to his class was different. The boys were all on their best behavior. The girls were quiet too, in their cute dresses and plaited hair. Everybody was scared of him. Mr. Martin didn't play, not at all. Words were few, but if you didn't listen, he'd march you to the front of the class, bend you over and swat your ass. He meant for it to really hurt. I don't remember but one black male teacher at the school, and that was Mr. Martin. He was a handsome, dark-skinned man who wore suits and who was a disciplinarian to seemingly all the black boys in the school. He played tapes of Dr. King. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. constantly admonish us about the importance of education, that if we didn't educate ourselves, we were going to live bad lives and go to jail or worse. I didn't know who Dr. King was at the time, but when I did learn about him and all he accomplished, I thought of Mr. Martin as our MLK. Mr. Martin was tough and swatted our asses, but he was doing the best to prepare us for the attrition that was coming, that some of us would be spirited away to while away our lives behind bars and this was only the second grade. He was right, though, in that many of the folks I knew then are dead or shells in themselves. The most rational thing is that the broader society didn't have any use for us, except to fight its wars and fill its prisons. As Slick Rick sang in Children's Story back in 1988, walk the straight, narrow, or your soul gets cast. As super careful as I was, I could have been detoured too. Later on, a counselor noticed that I always had a book and I liked to read, and it became a question of why I was not in the college prep courses. The nun had tried to decide my future. Teachers like Mr. Martin and Mrs. Lowry let me decide it for myself. A librarian named Mrs. Gold, the mother of the late great Jonathan Gold, saved little poop butt nerds like me by giving us a safe place to read. And there were other generous souls, teachers named Klewitz and Soloff and DeLuise and Feldman and white teachers who treated me and my classmates as though they liked us, cared about us, and wanted the best for us. After I saw my first novel, I thought of contacting Mr. Martin, but I was sad to hear he had passed away. I wish I had the opportunity to thank him for confirming what he tried to beat into us, our thick heads, that life was a minefield. If we wanted to get through it, we needed to be better than good and hella lucky. That's contributor Jervy Turvalone sharing parts of his essay titled On Race, School, The Teacher Who Tried to Decide My Fate and Those Who Let Me Decide It Myself. You can read the full essay at LAist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. These days, seeing celebs melt down is not as rare as it used to be. I mean, too many cell phones, too much social media. But back when Britney Spears shaved her head and took a swing at an SUV with an umbrella, well, that was shocking. But it was also very profitable for a lot of other people. Find out how when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
as a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. And you can hear Take Two's podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martinez. There's a new documentary about Britney Spears is playing on FX tonight. And it'll be on Hulu after that, which looks at the court-sanctioned conservatorship that the pop star has been living under for 13 years now. Framing Britney Spears examines the situation she entered into at the age of 26 when her father, as well as a lawyer, became the managers of her financial and personal affairs. And it also explores the hashtag Free Britney movement, where scores of people demand that she be released from under her father's thumb. What do we want? Free Britney! When do we want it? Samantha Stark is the director of Framing Britney Spears. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Your film tracks Britney Spears' path to fame. So how did she become the pop icon we know today? Britney started out very young. She was on the Mickey Mouse Club. She uh, got a record deal at 15. She was going around, going to Sweden, recording with Max Martin, the songwriter, making uh, her first album. And we ended up actually getting to talk to Kim Kaiman, who was the marketing director for Britney when she first started out at Jive Records. And, you know, she was saying it was the first time she was marketing a teenager. She was used to doing, uh, as she described it, like old men doing rock and roll. And so she wanted to show Britney as who she thought she really was. And what she considered was, you know, Britney is this really strong person and she wanted to market her to 12, 13 year olds as the friend that you look up to, but at the same time has the same hopes and dreams you do. She's so cool, I love her. I love the way she moves and she grows. She just captured that dichotomy so well of what a teenage girl is. Teenage girls wanna be adult women, but they also are kids. Another thing that Kim said is, you know, Britney was criticized throughout her career, but, uh, you know, even as a teenager for dressing too sexy and being too sexual and suggestive. And and Kim made this point that it was the it was the adults who were saying that it wasn't the millions of teenagers and tweens who were making her super successful. And the friend that uh, you wanted to be like, but the one you also wanted to be your friend at the same time. She had that kind of vibe. Then she actually kind of had a, a moment where she dipped out, but then came back shooting to stardom. She had uh, her share of struggles. Uh, can you tell us, though, uh, a little about how Spears was portrayed in the media when she finally got back in the flow, when 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 her first big hit came out and, and all of a sudden it started to happen for her? How was, how was the media portraying her? I think Britney was this golden girl from the start. You know, she... I think even Kim and the record executives were just so surprised how fast she sold records. Somebody uh, in the film points out that it was really boy band time then. So it was it was more unique that a girl would sell this many records. And 
almost immediately after that happened, she started getting asked um, these kind of questions that were shaming her for her sexuality. So I think it was a little of both. Like she was this golden girl. How does she do it? How does she sell this many records? And also, you know, you're a bad influence for my for my child. And there was a lot of these like older people confronting her about that. Yeah, it almost feels for a lot of people that she was created and that she had nothing or very little to do with that creation when, in fact, uh, she really led all a lot of the decision making in terms of what happens with her career and her contracts and all the business that she was uh, involved in. W- why do you think we a lot of us think that none of that was in, under her control? I mean, I think it's um, misogyny. How do I say this? Like, it's easy for people to dismiss teenage girls as uh, not having agency. You know, we did that also with with this like shame over her sexuality that, you know, we imagine that she was made to do this. She doesn't have agency over her sexuality. She doesn't have agency over the way she's portrayed. And yeah, I think it's really easy to do that with teenage girls or, you know, women in general. Now, okay, let's move on to the conservatorship. Uh, She was put under this uh, conservatorship back in 2008. That was a time where she was going through a lot of personal issues, and her father, Jamie Spears, and attorney Andrew Wallet were appointed as her co-conservators. Why was this conservatorship uh, requested in the first place? Uh, And and what has it meant to Brittany for all these years? So a conservatorship is this unique legal arrangement, and it's often a last resort. Um, It's used for someone who, you know, the kind of definition is that they can't provide food, clothing, or shelter for themselves. They can't take care of themselves and or they can't handle their money without being subject to undue influence. And I think it was it was kind of confusing that Brittany at 26 was put into this because, you know, it's most often used for the elderly, people who have Alzheimer's. And, you know, Brittany had this media coverage that was happening of her where there's all these headlines, Brittany's crazy, Brittany's, you know, having a meltdown, Brittany's this and that. And we have these two still frames, one of Brittany shaving her head and one of her, you know, kind of brandishing this umbrella. And so one of the things we wanted to explore in the documentary is, you know, what was outside those frames, what was happening at that time period that we didn't know about? How did those get taken? I I also wanted to know how much they affected her, you know, the whole country, but actually the whole world is seeing these images over and over and over again. And everyone's, you know, Britney's crazy, Britney's crazy. We have no idea if Britney has a mental health diagnosis. Um, her records are sealed, their health records. You know, there was this idea also that Britney was losing tons of money, perhaps giving it to people who, you know, were trying to take advantage of her. There's a lot of people trying to take advantage of her. And a conservatorship is something that a family member, anyone can file for it, but oftentimes it's a family member can file for. And so her father filed for this. At first, it was a temporary conservatorship over her. And it was a little surprising that her father filed for it because he didn't seem to be that big of a presence in her life until then. But she was taken in this 5150, you know, in an ambulance to the hospital. There was a police escort, so it had been pre-planned. And while she was in the hospital, this temporary conservatorship was granted. Then it became permanent. And now it's 13 years later. You know, in just looking back on 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 Britney's history, all, all the way from when she first entered the pop mainstream uh, through all of this, it just seems like I think a, a lot of us maybe 
are to blame for what has happened to her. I mean, I picked up those magazines in the supermarket to see all the pictures. You know, I, I would watch all those TV shows that would make jokes about her. Maybe I laughed a few times, too. I mean, how how much to blame do you think are all of us for what has happened to Brittany over the years? I mean, that's very uh, brave of you to admit. I think that's what the piece is trying to do. In a lot of ways, we're trying to show, you know, confront culture with how it was not that long ago. You know, the, a lot of these things were happening in 2007, 2008. When you, when you think about it, it's not so long ago. And I think, you know, we, it's important to look back at that and realize what that did and also ask the questions why, like, why did nobody say anything when a late night host is making fun of Britney? Why didn't we bat an eyelash when all of these things were, were going on? There was a scene in the documentary. Uh, it was a clip of Family Feud. Um, and the question is, name something Britney Spears has lost in the past year. And there's two contestants. And the first person answers very eagerly that she lost her husband. That's a good one. Her husband. Let's see how that stacks up her husband. It's up there, not number one, Lizzie. The hair. Lost a lot of hair. And that turned out to be the number one answer. But another answer was that she uh, lost her mind. She lost. She, she's lost her sanity. Yeah. And she lost her mind. That That's part of a, a, a TV game show. Her suffering became stuff that people use to make a living. I mean, how how just awful is that to know that so much business was generated by this person suffering? I think that the the family feud clip is one of the most heartbreaking things in the film. Another thing you don't uh, hear is that one of the answers was, what did she lose her kids? And like, how awful is that to make fun of somebody for losing her kids? You know, Brittany has said, actually watching all this archival footage over the course of her whole career from when she was really little, that her dream is to become a mother and that that's what she wants her first priority in life to be. And you're there's a game show where people are laughing at this idea that she lost her kids and lost her mind. And I think it's very memorable. All our jaws dropped when we saw that. And I mean, I still don't know the answer why, like, why did we do that? Why, why did so many people make money off of Britney's suffering? So where does all this stand right now? I mean, what do we know about how Britney's doing today and whether she'll be able to ever, ever be released from this uh, conservatorship? I was in the courtroom for a hearing in November, and that's a hearing where her court-appointed attorney, Sam Ingham, uh, requested that Jamie Spears be temporarily suspended from being Britney's conservator. Uh, He revealed that Britney had told him that she's afraid of her father and that she won't work as long as he's in charge of her career in that in that court hearing, I finally got to be in the courtroom because now the records aren't being sealed as much and, and the court was open. But uh, at the end of that, the judge decided against it and, and didn't suspend Jamie, which doesn't preclude uh, that from happening later. But there is a court hearing coming up like in about a week. So we'll see what happens next. But these are known to take a very, very long time. That's Samantha Sark, director, producer of the New York Times a documentary called Framing Britney Spears. Uh, Samantha, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Not that many of you out there are big sports fans, otherwise you'd be listening to something else. But if you get invited to a big raging Super Bowl party, 
please resist. Please resist. I'm going to be watching it alone under the covers by myself. All right. uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back Monday at two. Talk to you then.